Consistent self-improvement, everybody. You are now listening to American Gypsy Podcast. I am your host, Classic, and I am here with my co-host. Gypsy, and today we have Scott K. Harris. He is a well-known skydiver, veteran, businessman, and motivational speaker. He is also the author of Leap Forward and the host of Leap Forward Podcast. Welcome, Scott. Welcome. Hi, guys. How you doing? Doing pretty good. Doing good. Glad to have you here with us today. Let me start off a little different and go ahead and ask, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, where you're from and what you do and things like that. Well, I grew up in Michigan. Uh, I left Michigan early. I was kind of tired of the weather. I joined the Army in 1975, which wasn't a popular decision amongst my <laughs> peers. At the tail end of the Vietnam War, it wasn't normal to join the military. Mm. Um, they had just stopped the draft, but I joined. And it, as it turned out, it was the best thing I ever did for myself. <clears throat> I, uh, I learned a lot about myself in the military. Uh, I, I learned a lot of independence. I became motivated to improve myself and I never stopped. I learned then that what I seek in life is challenge and the overcoming of any particular challenge is the, the greatest thing that I can do. It's where I find my greatest joy. So I've kind of made a lifetime habit of looking for stuff that's hard. I can, yeah, I can imagine with... military. Yeah. At such a young age. <laughs> what did you do in the military? I was actually an aircraft mechanic. Um, I, I chose that specifically. And at the, at the time I scored really high on all their tests and they were just glad to get somebody in there. It was kind of funny cause I had to get my parents permission to join uh, under 18 and they didn't understand, but <laughs> they gave up on the idea of trying to dissuade me of much of anything at that point. And then just before I went in the service, they, the army came back and said, we want you to get your high school diploma first. Go take a GED test. And I thought, well, this is stupid. I'm going to be in the military. Who cares? So I, and I went in and I took the government equivalency test for, um, for high school. And in, I ended up being really pissed because it, I passed it easily. And they told me afterwards that I could have taken it at any time and gone to college. And I said, shit, I could have passed that when I was 12. <laughs> Thanks for wasting the last eight years of my life. Wow. But, uh, I mean, that was, it's kind of a funny story, but I went, I didn't really care about that that much, but it did seem kind of silly. It makes a lot of sense military. today. Pardon? I say it makes a lot of sense today, I guess, looking at the education system. <laughs> well, yeah, it was bad then. It's far worse now. Yeah, it's it's horrible. I, I honestly have a lot of strong feelings about the educational system. I feel that young people are getting the shaft. I think everybody, you know, under the age of 35 is totally getting screwed. Our educational system is terrible. The expectations and the stories that are being told to young people when they're trying to, you know, start their lives. It's all bullshit. People are not being given good information. They're not being 
taught useful things in school and uh, and they're getting horrible advice from their parents and counselors. It's a mess. It really is. It's yeah. it's too bad. I got out of the army and went to college and loved it. And I actually have three college degrees. Not that I would say that going to college is necessarily the best idea for a lot of people today. It's not because it's not what it used to be. You don't come yeah. out of college necessarily being able to support yourself or you haven't learned things that college was supposed to teach you. I mean, the whole point of going to college years ago was to set you up for a lifetime of learning and self-improvement. And then somewhere along the line, it changed and become, became a, a path to a job. And as a pathway to a job, it's a failure because it's not. It was never intended to be a direct path to a specific job. It was supposed to be a direct path to a better life, being a better person, being a more knowledgeable and interested person. And it's they're not teaching you that anymore. They're not showing, they're not encouraging people to be curious and yeah. to make themselves better and to constantly learn new things to make themselves more valuable and more interested. Instead, it's it's a mess. It really is. And it's very unfair and yeah. sad. I, it's hard to get a real education anymore. You have to be very driven and subject specific to get any kind of an education that's of any real value in society. Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah, they don't teach, I guess, modern day survival in education, even at least for what's going on today. So what, what was even back then, um, what, what's the difference even, I guess, going into the military then versus going now? What is one of the biggest difference is that you see? Well, <clears throat> that's a little hard to say. I mean, I, I have younger friends who are veterans and I talk to them and I have some idea what their experience is. I mean, when I was in the military, it was still it was still more like the old military and they were, it was, it was a little harsh, but it taught you harsh realities and taught you how to get, you know, to do your best at whatever task is put before you and more it's become less like that. It's become, you know, our current, um, I don't really know how to, how to put it, but in our current society, we're trying to pacify everyone and, try to not make anybody unhappy we've ended up with a weaker military and it's become a poorer experience to make better citizens because it's not based upon the same kind of training that it used to be where you were pushed to do your very best so you could find out what you were capable of that's the great gift that i got from being in the military they pushed me to do my very best at you know all kinds of things and i learned what i was capable of and it changed my whole attitude about life and made me a better person it made all of life easier for me because i learned how to accomplish things that in turn gave me a better life helped me earn more money helped me be more successful with in my personal relationships with others things like that and it's i don't think it's quite as good at that as it once was you work, you say you um, was a, um, uh, you said, was an aircraft mechanic? 
I was an aircraft mechanic in, in the army. That's what I did. I fixed helicopters. When going in, did you have a fear of flying? No, I actually started flying when I was 12 years old. What? Yes. <laughs> How do you start flying then? Do you have parents that there were pilots? I, <clears throat> no, my parents were pilots, but uh, my father was an orthodontist and my parents weren't getting along. And uh, home was kind of a mess and unpleasant. My dad felt guilty about that. So I badgered them into sending me to the only school that I could find uh, in the in the U.S. that had a flying club. And I'm still, to this day, I think I'm probably the only person I've ever heard of who, as a child, asked to be sent to military school but i did i and it was all it was just because i could learn to fly there nice yeah i actually um my dad is a pilot and i went to flights i well did mostly ground school but i took a few flight lessons when i was about 16 17. nice well that makes a little more sense when you're 16 you can solo when you're 17, you can get a private pilot's license. At 12, I could only go so far, and then I couldn't go any further until I turned 16. So I quit. I stopped because it became frustrating. But, I mean, it really only makes sense to wait until you're at least 16 to take flying lessons because you can't really progress. Yeah. It's How did like, you like it? Was it a neat experience? I did. Like, I didn't like ground school. You had to get through ground school first, and I was like, ready to fly, but you had to sit through, you know, all the technical knowledge and everything. But then uh, once I got um, into the flying, I took like three flight lessons and I didn't continue it afterwards, but I did enjoy it. But it's just at 16, 17, the budget was a little high and I was like, I'll circle it's a lot, back There's a lot of it. pressure. There's a lot of pressure and it's, it's a serious thing. And it requires to learn to fly is a pretty big commitment. I didn't get back to flying until I was until I after I got out of the army when I was 19. And then I got my private and commercial and instrument and all that stuff. I got pretty serious about flying then. But um, before then, it would have been tough. It's not really a kid's game. No, I actually didn't realize when I got, um, you know, we, we got up into the sky and I realized, you know, I was asking the guy like, OK, so where is. The radar like how do i know um you know what's around as far as other planes and he's like no there isn't any <laughs> he's like just look around i'm like what um <laughs> so yeah it was, it was a little see and be seen <laughs> yeah <laughs> which i thought was pretty nuts i but where i was, was mostly so, doing it was that here or it's or in minnesota okay. i did it in minnesota and i've flown in minnesota it's 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 pretty open country there it's it not you know, unless you're flying into one of the big cities there's not a lot of traffic and the yeah. truth is is it's a big ass sky there's a lot of room up there yeah it is. but it's still you know scary first time getting up there and realizing that but yeah what are some of the um, the chances of learning to fly as an adult or what's you know the pros and cons well it's you know, as I mentioned, it's a learning to fly is a is a pretty serious commitment, both financially and of your own time. Uh, flying is expensive. Um, you have to pay for an aircraft rental to you know to take flying lessons, which can cost anywhere from thirty five to eighty five dollars an hour for a, 
a training you know type small aircraft and then you, you're going to pay a, a flight instructor usually about 50 bucks an hour so you're going to spend 100 to 125 dollars an hour for every uh hour of flying that you do with an instructor and you know 50 bucks an hour or thereabouts uh for solo flight and you have to you know you're going to you you have to do quite a bit of both of those things to get your private pilot's license you're going to probably fly 50 to 60 hours total and probably 25 of those are going to be dual instruction with an instructor so it's fairly expensive and you have to do it in a concise period of time you can't if you, if you if you try to learn to fly over a period of a couple of years you're going to end up flying 80 or more hours just because you're going to be relearning stuff it's not going to be current you're you know the lessons you learn it's a flying is a perishable skill it's something you have to work at and constantly be working at to be current so if you take too long it's going to stretch out your learning curve uh, most people should probably try to get their private pilot's license in about six to seven months. Uh, fly a couple, you know, two or three times a week, uh, and the weather will stop you from doing that consistently. But if you're if you're committed to do that much, um, you'll get done in a pretty reasonable period of time. But it's also it's going to take a fair bit of your time. Every hour you spend flying, you're going to probably spend a couple hours at least. Uh, on the ground studying and talking to your instructor and reading. Uh, there's a fair bit of book learning. Uh, getting a private pilot's license alone is, it's probably the equivalent of a year of college, maybe a little less than that. But it's, it's a substantial amount of technical information that you have to incorporate into the practical aspect of flying. Because there's a lot of knowledge that you have to have. And, and it has to be you know, you have to be able to recall it and use that information. It's not just you learn something in a book and it's, you know, abstract. It's something you have to be able to use. It has to be real to you and you have to be able to recall it on demand. Does that make sense? Plenty yeah. of sense. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a significant commitment of time and effort. But on the other side of that, it's totally worth it. You'll never meet anybody even who just got a private pilot's license and flies once in a while, who that doesn't become part of their, their persona. Everybody who, who is a pilot, when you meet somebody, if they're a pilot on any level, they will manage to get that into the conversation when you first meet them. <laughs> it becomes, and it isn't that they're arrogant about it. They really aren't. It just becomes part of your identity. Yeah. You just can't not, you know, you know, if you're going to tell somebody who you are, that's part of that's a big part of who you are. And it's because it's it impacts your life. So it's worth doing. It's not something you would ever be sorry you did. Yeah, it's definitely scary, though. I love flying, but I haven't quite grasped the whole me flying the plane part yet. <laughs> well, see, it's actually a lot less frightening once you can do it yourself. Mm. I hate flying commercial. I hate sitting in it. It drives me nuts. <laughs> I, it bores me. I feel like I'm trapped. I feel like I'm supposed to be doing something the whole time. I can't sleep on a commercial plane. I can't. I feel like I'm supposed to be doing stuff. Man, I sleep like a baby. <laughs>
<laughs> well, I'm jealous of that because I hate long flights. It's just unpleasant. Have you yeah. had any scary moments uh, while flying or um, skydiving? I doubt your podcast is long enough to, <laughs> to recall all of my scary moments. Um, I, I had, I've had a few weird things happen. I, uh, I actually had to jump out of an airplane that was on fire once. Mm. Uh, I was alone. Um, I joined the Caterpillar Club. That was odd, <laughs> to say the least. I had to. Uh, this is with the parachute. I had land. I had an. I had an. Yeah, I was wearing a parachute. Okay. I was. Go <laughs> I was going off to do uh, aerobatics, and the okay. airplane caught fire inside, and I got out. Okay. Safely, and the airplane crashed in the middle of nowhere because I was in the middle of nowhere to do aerobatics anyway. Mm. Um, you don't do that over large groups of people unless it's an air show or something like that. I was just going to practice, but uh, one I, honestly, the scariest thing that happened is I was flying back from I was flying from San Francisco to L.A. I was li lived in L.A. and I had uh, an e engine problem in flight at night. And uh, I was I was leaking oil out of the out of the out of the propeller uh, governor, um, which would be like a transmission type thing in a in a car, and it was spilling oil on the uh, on the windscreen, and mm -hmm. uh, and it was making it hard one hard to see. But obviously, losing oil from an engine is a bad situation, and I had to find a place near me to land before the engine seized up and i did but it was uh it was pretty nervy and it was a it was a little out of the way airport that had it had lights but you had to you had to uh keep the radio to make the lights come on and land and i was having trouble getting them to come on um and i knew i was nearby but i couldn't find the damn place and it's if you're flying at night in the dark if you lose an engine, you know, you look down and there's lit up places where there's, you can see stuff. And then there's dark areas where you can't see anything. If you have to make an emergency landing, you land in the dark spaces where you can't see anything. Scary, huh? Yeah. Cause that's where there's no people. If there's where it's lit, there's people there. You can't land there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I got the lights on, on the runway at this out of the way airport landed there safely. Uh, but the engine was damaged. That was uh, an expensive lesson. Mm. And, and these uh, were your personally oh, owned planes? Yeah, that was my airplane. Okay. Um, but uh, most people who fly for years and years have a few, uh, you know, a few close calls. Then it teaches you to, you know, pay attention. Um not many, really. I've been flying. I've got about 3,000 hours. I'm the chief pilot at a parachute center here in Portland, uh, so I fly all the time. Um, and I have a little hobby airplane. It's a 70-year-old two-seater that I just kind of play with and tinker with. But uh, <laughs> flying is definitely a big part of my, my life. I'm also, I skydive. I'm still a jumper at the you know, at the parachute center, I managed okay. uh, several other pilots, so I don't, I'm not flying there every day. Okay. I have, I have other work to do. <laughs> so how was that skydiving? 
Skydiving. Skydiving yeah. taught me most. Uh, it taught me the most about how to face challenge. Mm. When I was a young man in the army, uh, I was 18 years old and I took up sport parachuting. Um, the military used to have clubs for of different kinds uh, for service personnel. And one of them was they had uh, a skydiving club at a lot of different uh, bases all over the world. And I saw these guys jumping, you know, on the base. They always seemed to be having a lot of fun. So I thought it was something that I had to try. And uh, it didn't take very many tries before I was hooked. And that was, oh, what is that? 47 years ago, 46 years ago, something like that. Um, I've got a little over 4,000 jumps. I spent, I put myself through college teaching other people to skydive. And, and later on I did, uh, I was a tandem master. I did a lot of tandems with other people and that was a lot of fun. And I competed. Uh, I, I won the national collegiate skydiving championships while I was in college. Uh, just a couple of years after I got out of the army, I almost reenlisted just to be able to make cheap skydives. But I decided that after two years, I'd had enough of the military. I didn't have any bad feelings about it, but I think I wanted so I wanted something else for myself in life. I think that skydiving is like on the top of the list of fears for me. <laughs> I don't have too well, many funny. fears, but skydiving is was there. I don't know anything. No. What, what, and, and, and it's not for everybody. And I don't necessarily encourage anybody to go out and skydive. And you don't certainly don't have to jump out of an airplane to get the benefit of some of my insight about facing challenge. But whatever it is that you, you know, in your imagination that you fear, it's not that. That doesn't happen. Most people are afraid of heights. You know, if you stand up on a tall building or up on a tall ladder, it's scary. Yeah. That's normal. You should be, you know, experience some vertigo. If you're up in an airplane, mostly people who are afraid of heights aren't afraid to fly. And it's the same thing jumping out of an airplane is riding in an airplane. There's nothing between you and the ground to give you any depth perception. So there's no sense of being high. It's like looking at it, it's, it appears two-dimensional. It's like looking at a picture on the wall. There isn't any depth there, you can't tell. You can tell when you get 50 feet off the ground and land, but there's no stopping it at that point. It's over in a few seconds. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing that most people are afraid of, and that's normal, is the feeling of falling. You know, like when, yeah. if you go on a roller coaster or you're in an elevator that goes down real fast yes. and your stomach feels like it leaps up inside your chest because you're being mechanically pushed into acceleration. That doesn't happen when you're skydiving. You don't feel that. When you're, when you're just before you jump out of an airplane, you're moving the same speed and direction the airplane is. After you get out the door, you're still moving the same speed and direction the airplane is. Over time, the air pressure changes and that direction goes from forward to downward. And then you accelerate about another 20%, but that's it. And it happens over a period of about eight seconds. So you don't really feel it. There's no feeling of falling. There's no sensation of speed. You feel like you're riding on a cushion of air. Now, I'm not saying that there's nothing to be afraid of. I promise you, <laughs> if you go on a skydive, when the door opens and it gets loud, 
it'll become very real. (laughs) When you're moving towards that door, it'll get real. But there really (laughs) isn't a lot of time to second guess yourself at that point. And you've been trained and you've thought about it for a while. Very few people back out. It happens. Nobody's going to force someone to skydive. Your tandem master isn't going to push you out the door. Nobody's going to do that. If you don't want to go, they'll ask you if you want to go. And if you say no, you'll ride the airplane down. It's okay. But it happens so infrequently. I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen a student ride the airplane down. And that's over 40-some years. It just doesn't happen very often. Because when you're ready, you know, when it's time to do it, it's time. There isn't a lot of time to think about it or second-guess yourself. And most people just go ahead and do it. And most people are always pretty happy they did. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to become a skydiver and spend your whole life doing it, but it's a pretty wonderful experience. It's a, you know, skydiving like flying gives you a sense of freedom that you don't find in almost anything else. Maybe scuba diving is a little like that too. You're stepping into a different universe. You're, you know, where all the physical rules you've learned about using your body and moving through the world are completely different. And it really gives you a sense of freedom. Now, when I talk about facing challenge, I learned to face, you know, substantial challenge skydiving. Um, And for me, it's kind of like meditation. Transcendental meditation that my father practiced his whole life is about learning to focus all of your mental and physical resources on one thing and to clear your mind of everything else. And I promise you, when you put your foot's in the door of the airplane and you're leaping out and you cross the line of not being able to come back and you're on your way out the door, you are not aware of your bills. You're not aware of problems with your spouse. You are unaware of what your job is like or your, you know, the, how much money is in your bank account. None of that stuff exists for you. You are 100% in the moment. And if you, and if you do anything that, that, you know, that makes you focus so completely and clearly on anything, it will teach you to command that focus, to, to concentrate it at will, and you can direct it in any problem. Great athletes, great people who are great at any particular thing have learned to do this. They've all have this in common, that they've learned to focus all of their intellect, all of their, their personal resources on any particular problem. And they can use that in, in other areas than just the one where they have become expert. You mentioned transcendental uh, meditation. Meditation, How's that yeah. um, different from other types of meditation? Not not terribly different. Transcendental meditation comes from India. Um, it's and I know more about it because I've done it myself. My father practiced it his his entire adult life. Uh, but any kind of meditation is really about it, it's it's about focusing your 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 mental acuity and clearing your mind of anything else except what you're focusing on. And it's really more about clearing your mind so that you're not thinking about all kinds of different things at the same time. Most of us, 
you know, if you're not really concentrating on anything, your 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 head's full of chaos. You can you know, you're you're hopping from one idea to another to another problem, and you're thinking about three different things at the same time, and that detracts from your, your ability to really focus on any one particular thing. So if you could learn to harness that ability, it can enhance your own performance in any avenue, in any environment. You mentioned um, uh, scuba diving as a, you know, kind of like uh, being in a different right. realm. Your fear, do you have a, a fear of water or anything or is your, no, is it I, paralyzed? I, I, I have a, uh, a sea card. I've, I've done a fair bit of scuba diving. I even did some for work at one time. Okay. We like snorkeling. Um, so, and that's kind of one yeah, of the snorkeling is great fun. And yeah. in some ways snorkeling, I actually snorkeling is a little more scary than scuba diving because really? you can't breathe. You have to hold your breath. And yeah, if you go down very deep, you're going to, you know, and you're exerting yourself by swimming around, you're going to run out of breath fairly soon. But if you have a tank on, you can breathe, you can relax. Yeah. It's we're where you are. I mean, you can sit on the bottom and do nothing. I think about the technical parts of, um, you know, that comes along with scuba diving from the tank and all of the right. things that come it, along it is, it, it's that more complicated. There's more stuff to me. There's more stuff to think about, but. It's yeah. for me, the first time I put on scuba tanks was in a pool. It wasn't, you know, very deep, but I just, I got under the water and I could tell, wow, this is really cool. I don't, I can just sit down here. I, I could breathe. This yeah. is awesome. <laughs> it was later that I had to learn about, you know, how fast you come up and, you know, if you can, you, know, you have to kind of, you have to yeah. focus on the dive tables and all that stuff, but that comes with time. And it's not, it's not that complicated, really. It's not. It just requires, like a lot of things, a fair bit of self-discipline. I could see him still being, I guess, which one would you say? I, of course, I'm sure, I guess flying would be, but they're both still equally the amount of danger, I guess, in dealing there with your, you know, your safety. I think wise. flying is potentially more dangerous. Uh -huh. And yeah. the thing is, the thing about flying versus scuba diving it's not when you're flying an airplane, even if you're alone in the airplane, it's not just your personal safety that's that you're responsible for. You're responsible for the safety of people on the ground, other airplane, other people in the sky. In scuba diving, it, it would be hard for you to screw up and take anybody else with you. Okay. Yeah. It's more of a personal you know, responsibility for your own safety and maybe the safety of your, of your dive partner. But if you're flying an airplane, like I fly an airplane all day long, Saturday and Sunday with 17 people in it, I'm responsible for their lives yeah. at, in, in, it, it very, you know, in a very real sense, uh, a great deal of that time. And I take that responsibility very seriously as do most pilots. And so that's a greater responsibility. I can be pretty yeah. laissez-faire about my own safety, but when it comes to the safety of someone else who has trusted me with their safety, I have to be pretty serious about that. Understood. So, um, what, what inspired you to transfer all of those, I guess, skills and insights into, um, doing motivational speaking and, writing books and podcasts? Well, it, it, 
and if you can't tell, I like talking about this stuff. I do. <laughs> um, I like, and, and, and I honestly feel like one of the skills that I've been blessed with is uh, the skill of communication. I believe that I can make people understand things that I, that I see. Okay. And, and I feel like I need, you know, I have a responsibility to use that, that skill. I also feel that I have a lot of experience that can be helpful to others. And it really is, this is, you know, I'm at a stage in life where I'm thinking more about what I can do uh, to help other people and to make a mark in that way than I am about feeding myself and putting a roof over my head. I mean, I still have to think about stuff like that, but um, I think my priorities are changing and I'm excited to think about being able to, you know, share my experience and my knowledge with other people. And, uh, and I'm excited about that. Also, this is another challenge for me. I, I've had quite a few different jobs. I've changed professions multiple times in my life, probably more than most people will. And I've done pretty well at all those things. And typically this is what happens to me. I reach a point where it's like, well, I, you know, what, what's, what next? Well, this is what's, what's next now. <laughs> so this is a random one, but if you were to, if you can have, if you can sit down and have coffee with anyone in the world, um, who would that be and why? Living? Anyone mm. living? That's a tricky one. <laughs> uh, let's say living, yeah. Living. No, yeah, that's that's actually tougher. Um, well, okay, let's expand. Uh, I like. I, I honestly, I like. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, the English comic uh, uh, Gervais, um, oh, Ricky who's Gervais. hosted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think he's a really interesting person. Um, uh, what's the guy from uh, who's who's he's a comedian, but he's a woodworker on uh, from uh, Parks and Rec. Um, I've actually seen him live once, but he's a really interesting guy uh, and a real practical. I think probably one of my biggest heroes right now is the guy that. Uh, Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, this is horrible because I really admire this guy and I would love to talk to him. Um, <laughs> he's he, he has, he established, well, he's an actor. He does, uh, he's the dirty jobs guy. Um, he has, uh, he established a works foundation to help young people, you know, get scholarships for careers in the building trades and stuff like that. And not, and go to college and end up a hundred thousand dollars in debt and be unemployable. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as most, most celebrities, I'm not terribly impressed with, um, well, I'm kind of sick. Like, yeah, I wouldn't say celebrity. Yeah, <laughs> if there are any people that I guess you get inspired by and that, you know, help push you in a certain direction or overcome. Right. Things yeah. That, like, you know, politicians, <laughs> actors and stuff. I'm tired of hearing people like that try to tell us how to think. Yeah. I think most people are actually smarter than all that. And they, you know, if they were, if they, 
had the confidence to think for themselves, I think things would be a whole lot better across the board. I think we yeah. have a lot of people who are who really don't have any practical knowledge trying to tell us what to think and how to act, and they don't know. Yeah. It's it's a it's just bad information. How do you feel um, psychologically? Things will turn over the next few years from the like everything that's happened from the pandemic and things like that. How do you see things? It's a little terrifying. I mean, it is, and I, I I'm afraid. I think if you, you you talk to, I think everybody feels unsettled, and they don't really. You know, nobody's really sure what's going to happen next. And they everybody knows that there's a tremendous turmoil out there. And there's we're all being pulled in, you know, in, in different directions. And honestly, you know, to me, I, I see we're all being pushed in different directions. We're being, you know, the, the population of the of the entire earth. It's not just the U S everybody's being manipulated yeah. and it's, and, and, and I think we're all aware that we're all being manipulated and it's, it's scary. Cause we don't, cause I don't understand why I don't. And I don't think most people do. I don't think we, it's, it's possible to see who's profiting from this. Who's, who's benefiting from all this turmoil and chaos amongst the people. Uh, and it's, it's hard to see. I mean, it's hard to point at one thing and say, this is the evil culprit, but I think we can all agree that, you know, the government's lying to us and manipulating us. The media's lying to us and manipulating us. Yeah. The only source of real knowledge and information is, is you guys. It's people who are doing podcasts and things like that, independent opinions and, and, information it's the only free press that's left <clears throat> i mean i i feel very strongly about this way. well but i mean if you turn on any news outlet and i don't care if it's fox or nbc or cbs or C, it's all bullshit they're all they all have their own agenda and they're gonna they're gonna feed you whatever it is that they think that you want to hear that's going to make people turn to their channel and it's not news. They're not reporting the news. They're not telling you what's happening and letting you think for yourself about what, you know, how you feel about it. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of terrifying. I mean, it's kind of, we were losing control of one of the most important legs uh, or pillars of our free society. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely scary to me. I think if, if you talk to more older people like myself, we're, we have more fear for the future than I think younger people have, but it's just because, you know, when you're young, you think you're bulletproof and everything's going to work out. I'm still trying to convince myself I'm not quite bulletproof, but, uh, and I think things will work out and there's, there is reason for hope. I mean, this is kind of crazy. I haven't talked about this in a while, but we're in a point in society for the first time in the history of humanity, we're in a position to do away with government. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah. What do we really need them for? Because of the internet and the massive amount of available communication, 
everyone, every citizen of the earth could vote on any and all things. The whole point of representative government that we have in the United States is based on the idea that nobody can get together and do all that. So we just vote for somebody that we think is going to, you know, make decisions that we like. Do we really need that anymore? Is that I mean, really literally everybody, everybody happening. in the country could, everybody in the country could sit down at their computer at every night and vote on different decisions. We could hire some managers to oversee the nuts and bolts of implementing the things that we decide on, but do we really need these idiots deciding for us what we want? I don't think so. No. And this is the first time in the history of mankind this has actually been possible on a grand scale. True. Even just to be kind this, of inspiring in this... to think about. I mean, I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if humanity's, you know, if we're all smart enough or I think it's happening. You know, whatever it takes, but it's certainly worth thinking about. If nothing else, it's worth it's worth using that as a lever against those who would try to control us. But how does that look as far as moving past this and even trying to trying to move away from that kind of government? How what is the system that's there in play, or what do we? How are we setting it up as a people? Well, what, I'm not we, sure. I mean, mostly, I, I, it would be a form of revolution to do away with government, yeah. but which is a little scary to talk. You know, like maybe I shouldn't have my name here. <laughs> <laughs> well, they at least don't uh, need to be. I, I'm pretty sure I'm not well, important enough so they have yeah. anybody, you know, uh, you know, dark suited thugs come to my house at night, but no, it's definitely a, we, a we could definitely, yeah. you know, I mean, it's possible. It, it's technically technologically possible for, for, you know, for everyone in the country, everyone in uh, every country, literally to make every important decision themselves. We can literally have, an, you know, a, a worldwide democracy where everybody makes every decision that there needs to be made. We, do we really need other people making decisions for us? They can't do worse. They, they the population couldn't possibly make worse decisions no. than the idiots that we put in power. And they this couldn't. Is, no. And this is what and, people don't realize. Like the government is gigantic. It, they, we don't need this huge, cause I, we used to live in DC, Maryland, Virginia, and I, I did a lot of government jobs there and it's, there are so many departments, there's so many buildings and there's, hundreds of people in each building and it's like okay do we need it to be that big and it's still mostly the generally the people though the government workers still is it's still the people so well those are the people but they're not doing anything useful well no i mean some of the they're, workers they're, I mean, though a lot not different from the politicians and the workers you know those are the ones that you know they can be gone any day now so that's still a large population of, you know, the people who don't need those few that are right. calling the shots. Right. So the people still make up, you know, and that's what we noticed. They, we still make up the government is just waking up to understand that, you know, right. It's it, we are, we are, we, I've seen the enemy and he is us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes this is a, this is a really interesting concept that i i'd like to share with you um 
my father told me this years ago, and I and and he's right. The founding fathers of the United States set up the government very specifically to not be able to do anything. That's why we have three separate branches of government. So they can't ever agree on anything. So they can't get anything done and they don't intrude in people's lives. The only time they can ever all like if we need to go to war against somebody to protect ourselves or anything really important that everybody feels exactly the same way about, then they can accomplish something. But at any other time, they can't possibly agree. We've screwed that up in modern times by the politicians have figured out how to negotiate and we end up with these laws that are 500 pages long that contain all this negotiations, one, you know, one thing for one group and one thing for another group in order to get the law passed. That never used to happen. Before World War II, there were very few laws because they could never agree on anything to pass laws except things that were really important. Now they pass laws constantly. It's, there are thousands of laws passed constantly about bullshit that doesn't have any. We don't need laws about everything. Yeah. They're trying to supplant judgment with rules, and it never works. Yeah. You have to have judgment. You have to, you know, every situation is different. We're, we're, we're witnessing it now with the um, separation or the they're so divided with the mask mandate thing where they're supposed to be um, lifting the mask mandate in certain parts of LA, but it's like LA County is not with this or in this County, they're going to do it or not do it. And it's, it created a, such a confusion and it makes no sense because if today you decide to lift it, well, no, you could say if you're lifting it tomorrow, then I walk into a place today and you're nagging me about, a mask and then tomorrow I can walk in and there's no mask. It just seems very, very unnecessary. Oh, it's and insane. It's, it's completely insane. insane. The whole thing about masks is nuts. And, and, you know, the thing about requiring, you know, people to get vaccinated, that's, that's terrifying to me. I got yeah. vaccinated, but that was my choice. Mm telling me i mean nobody was Forcing telling me i had to, to. Yeah. if somebody were telling me i had to i probably would have told them to go screw themselves just because i don't want to be told what to do right that's my personal this my you know i mean it's the same same argument that women have about abortion it's my body it's my choice right. and how do we get from that from screaming that from the rooftops to everybody you know you have to have a you have to get these shots that apparently don't do much. Yeah. I've got yeah. vaccinated. I still got COVID. Hmm. My doctor tells me, well, that's great. You have tremendous antibodies now. Great. But it doesn't, you know, it didn't explain stuff makes yeah, a lot it of didn't sense. Make sense. That's, and that's, <laughs> we, we can, you know, and that's the thing as people, yeah, we're not that stupid. At least some of us are not. So, you know, you can notice what, makes sense and kind of what doesn't make sense and even like i said the psychological trauma i'm curious of how the recovery process is going to look you know as far as for people in the well, future the, i think that the hardest part of the recovery is people learning to forgive each other i mean there's people who are being absolutely hateful mm -hmm. towards people who don't want to get vaccinated or wear masks towards and people who are hateful towards those who do want to get vaccinated and 
wear masks. And it's like, how did the hell did this come about? Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's gotten to the point where people can't discuss politics. I mean, politics is something we always discussed, and we, it was a common joke. You don't you know you, you don't talk about politics or religion at the dinner table. But in truth, that's people talked about both things all the time at the dinner table. But you can have opposing views and discuss it because at the end of the day, you all knew it was bullshit that you were never going to have any real effect on anything as an individual and all the politicians are liars and it's, it's just theater. It's, you know, human theater that yeah. we're talking about. And now everybody thinks it's all life and death that there, some politicians are great and some are evil. No, they're all pretty much useless. They're not. <laughs> <laughs> and it it's a real reality check to live long enough to get to that point to you realize like well it's always been i mean it's it it's a little frightening to me to see how people are so polarized and antagonistic that they literally think that they hate somebody who thinks a certain way or they hate somebody who thinks a different you know a different way than they do or i mean it's that that frightens me. That's the complete yeah. lack of humanity. Because yeah. you learn the most having a conversation with someone with an opposing viewpoint. I mean, at least you right. get it satisfied. Like, like how, you know, it helps you understand how, how someone can think a certain way or have a certain perspective. And you might well, the even truth change is, your is mind. No matter what you think or how you feel about anything, you've got a good reason to think that way. You didn't just... You know, right. I, most of the time, some people are just parroting what somebody else told them, which is a little terrifying to begin with, that they're not thinking for themselves anymore. But yeah. that goes you know, to education as good, well. Huh? That goes back to education where we were taught to think a certain way. Right. We're, the school system. Yeah. In, in school and in a lot of areas of life anymore, people are not being taught uh, to think critically or, and to question and that's a big departure from what you know what the way things have been for a long time um i was taught to question everything and that doesn't mean that i'm against everything it means that i want to decide for myself what i think about it and i think environment may be important as well you say you were taught to question everything even growing up as a child you know certain some people weren't actually allowed to question things and i'm right. realizing that as an adult just learning about certain history even with my own parents we realized situations where they just weren't allowed to question things so absolutely and it's that's horrifying and i was blessed i mean my parents failed in, in a lot of ways because they're just you know human beings like everybody else but they definitely succeeded in encouraging me to think for myself and to question things and make up my own mind about everything. And everyone really needs to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you can't, if you don't uh, see the world critically and are somewhat suspicious and independent in your thoughts, it makes it very hard for you to be successful in anything. Mm -hmm. People who are successful are people who think independently. They're capable of, you know, of, creative and uh conflicting thought they can think for themselves and they make up their own minds about things and they are self-driven 
people who are following whatever thing is in front of them are not. And it doesn't mean that they're not capable of that, but they have to get past not thinking for themselves. They have to get over the fear of being wrong and start to think for yourself. Yeah. I guess to kind of go back a little bit with dealing with flying, what are some sure. of your favorite places that you've ever been? That I've ever flown to? Or visited um, or flown to, or yeah, just in the well, world. Well, my, my favorite place in the world that I've ever been was Tahiti. And, and uh, that was where my first child was conceived. I was there working uh, okay. with my now ex-wife uh, for three weeks. And it was just the most beautiful place in the world. I didn't wear shoes the whole time I was there. Mm. The everywhere you walked, the ground was soft. It wasn't like, you know, not like California where the ground's all granite and stuff like that. And you got to wear sandals, even, you know, when, when we were outside, everything was soft and damp. The water was cool and it was a color of blue I'd never seen before. And you could see forever through the water. Mm -hmm. uh, and the climate was just so incredibly pleasant. And all the people there had an attitude of, you know, taking it easy and being independent, being kind to each other and nothing mattered that much because you're surrounded by beauty everywhere you looked. I mean, it was just, it was a beautiful, beautiful place. I've been a lot of other places. I lived in Egypt for a year uh, working uh, on the uh, water treatment plants there as an engineer. And that was fascinating, but, challenging it was a challenging place to live it was a challenging place to get any work done Why but do you say that? it was um well it's such a different culture they um some things about this will be harder to say um this in egypt the you have a majority of the people are muslim and a fairly large minority of the people are christian they're cops and the cops are treated like third-class citizens um only worse they do most of the work and uh, and the uh most of the bureaucratic uh people working there don't work very hard they have they don't have the kind of work ethic that any american would be used to um, I used to oversee, I oversaw 130 Egyptian engineers when I worked there at five different water treatment plants. And I would, I would go into my office and work for a couple hours in the morning. And then I'd go out to one of the plants and they would all start to show up and they would have tea. And then they'd work for about an hour and a half and then they'd have lunch and then they'd work for an hour. And then they'd have tea again and then they'd get on a bus and go home and I would leave and go back to my apartment and work for a couple more hours. And then I, and that was an, and I, I couldn't do more than an eight hour a day. They couldn't produce enough work to keep me busy beyond a full eight hour day. And, and literally that's 130 people couldn't keep up with me. And it wasn't that I was 
super. I was just a typical hardworking engineer. And I found that very frustrating. It was hard because it took so long. I could have been, if I had 130 engineers working for me that were hardworking and did an honest day's labor, I could have gotten out of there in three months. I was there for a year because it just took forever to get anything done. And, you know, I mean, I guess it was good for me in some ways. I made pretty good money while I was there. And it was interesting. I did a lot of scuba diving in the Sinai Peninsula, and I studied all the antiquities, and that was fascinating. But working there was really frustrating. And Cairo was the filthiest place I've ever been in my life. Wow. I haven't heard that before. (laughs) Yeah, I've never. The air pollution was horrible, and there were just dump garbage in the streets. People would. Uh, urinate in the streets and stuff like that. It was pretty, it, it was not super pleasant. Everybody was nice. All the Muslims were nice to me. They were nice people. They liked, they cared about animals. They just didn't work very hard. And that's fine for them, but it was made it real hard for those of us who were trying to get things done. Yeah, so funny. I found that very challenging in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, rewarding in others yeah i did a good job i got a good bonus um everybody liked me so did you have a particular place you like to fly versus visit um i owned a i've owned a couple of airplanes that i really liked i would like to have a more powerful aerobatic airplane i may build one oh but I don't have anything like that now. I have a lot of fun flying the the jump plane because it's real powerful turbine airplane. Um, that's fun. So building planes, how does how does that the the process usually go? And and I guess well, fast it, forward. It, it, it takes about <laughs> it takes usually takes about a year, maybe two years, okay. to build build an airplane in and you devote devoting most of your spare time towards doing it. Um, there are lots of kits that are pretty well laid out. Um, but it's just a fair bit of labor to, to put it all together. Um, one of the most popular kit planes in the world is built uh, about 10 miles. The kits are built about 10 miles from my house and there's really good support for those. So that's probably what I'll end up building um is a a, it's called an rv a vans rv but there are thousands of kit amateur built airplanes all over the world they're very popular because you can build something that has great performance and then you can do the maintenance if you build it you can do the maintenance on it and that saves you a lot of money um like my certificated airplane I have to have an annual inspection done on it and it costs me $1,500 every year just to have a mechanic inspect it. On some ways that's good because I don't have to take it all apart. Somebody else is doing that and and looking at it. Um, And there's a few things that, you know, an owner pilot can do to a, a certificated airplane as far as maintaining it. You can change the oil and a few things like that. But when it comes to doing anything significant, you can't, you can't work on it. Um, so that's what's attractive about a home built experimental aircraft and the technology has come a long ways. You can build a pretty nice airplane. You just have to be careful. 
<laughs> yeah. But before we get ready to close it out, um, is there any information you'd like to share about your books and things like that? Well, my primary book is uh, Leap Forward, and it is sort of autobiographical in that the entire book, basically, I talk about uh, specific experiences that I've had in life and the lessons that I learned from that. And then I talk about how to employ those principles to other uh, areas that other people can use those same principles to help them improve their own performance and find great joy in living uh, and as well as personal and professional success. Okay. Um, it's kind of a labor of love. It's been a lot of fun. It was, it was, I just started writing it as, as an exercise. It's a little funny that I, I decided that it, when the pandemic hit, that work was going to slow down for me. So I was going to write another book uh, in order to fill my time and, you know, be productive. And I started that one. And then, uh, my family told me I should write Leap Forward. And I thought about it and I started that. And I ended up writing these two books at the same time. I cared more about Leap Forward, really. Uh, the other book is about commercial property maintenance. And it's the only book of its type. There is no, there's th hundreds of books about how to maintain a house. There's nothing about how to maintain commercial property. Mm. Crazy, huh? Um, mm. So that's what that book's about. But while I was, when I started that, I finished Leap Forward first because I got really passionate about sharing my opinions about facing challenge and finding joy and improving your own performance, basically trying to be your best self. And I think there's quite a few other people that have that a similar message. I think mine is different in that everything that I'm telling you about is from direct personal experience. And I'm sharing those experiences with the reader to help you understand uh, the methodology or the principles that I'm trying to show you about how to improve your own life. And so it makes me more of a regular person. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And sometimes you need to hear from a lot of different types of people from different walks of life just to get a better perspective on sure how to that's improve. how we learn you don't yeah. learn from here you know getting information one way you got to yeah. get it in several different ways you have to see it you have to hear it you have to taste it and you have to use it and then yeah. it becomes part of your you know your own knowledge yeah. but if you only get it from one or two forms it just doesn't gel yeah and that was one of the things that actually inspired us to start our podcast as well is to allow us to have a conver genuine conversation with people like you and to get the experience straight from you and learn in that way as well. Neat. This has been a lot of fun. I've liked talking to you guys. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to actually us. listen to some of your other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're definitely I'm inspired by your um, flight story and even just. I know I want to try um, skydiving at least one time, but it's just, I haven't, it's I'm, great I'm, fun. I'm, I'm, we're it dealing is. with the ocean right now. So we're going to get past the ocean. <laughs> the ocean's cool. That's all cool. Yeah. I mean, life is, there's a lot of wonderful experiences to have and you should have them all. You should have everything you think of uh, to do. You should try. Yeah. You may and, not want to do everything forever, but you and, know, all of it is a great experience. 
I always say sometimes easily that even I love flying so much, even though, you know, if, if that was ever the way out, if that was the last time I'm okay falling from the sky. So I know even as a pilot, that's, <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine, you know, as far as flying myself right off, but I've always, you know, out of the fears of understanding how life is, if there was ever a, a time I could say, okay, yeah, the sky sunset or not sunset, but just looking above the clouds and all of that. Yeah. That's a, a one of still like a beautiful thing. See, for it me. calls to you. Yeah. The sky calls to you. Like it calls to me. <laughs> You're going to have yeah. to do something about that. <laughs> and like I said, I sleep good on a flight. She knows. Yeah, if it could be three or four hours, I'll get on it and make. Hopefully, I'll make it by out um past liftoff. I'm glad you nice. explained <laughs> about like skydiving. You don't get that falling feeling. No, because that's no the scariest <laughs> thing to me. I mean, even when it. the flight you can't have it. Even when a commercial flight does a little like drop, like a on right. turbulence, my heart right. drops to the floor. Like, oh, it's I, very I really uncomfortable. Hate it. <laughs> Yeah. That just means you're normal. That's yeah. very uncomfortable for anyone. It's less uncomfortable if you're the one at the controls, make, you know, trying to soften that. Yeah. You don't feel that the turbulence doesn't really bother you much when you're the one that's flying. If you're sitting in the back of the plane, it bothers everyone. It bothers me. It bothers everybody. I can't, it probably doesn't bother me as much, but it still is uncomfortable. It's a little exciting for me, I guess, because... It, that's the only time you really experience it. You know, you can't experience necessarily turbulence with driving or any other time. So it's like, that's the only way you can experience turbulence, turbulence is if you're flying and it, it's not necessarily, you know, it's, it's, no, it's well, you, and it's you're, you're not in control. <laughs> and for some people who yeah. are able to let go and, and enjoy not being in control. That's great for me. Not so great. I want to be in control. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm just the weird one. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it's like you have that's turbulence. Greater peace in some ways than others. That's a good <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah, but it's definitely been a very, very great conversation. If you're ever in Los Angeles, we love to invite oh, you. Oh, I'll think for... about that. I I come down a couple times a year. That'd yeah. be fun. Come, yeah, we have yeah, a come sit in. Yeah. Definitely come sit in with us and have a, dis a a conversation with us as well. That'd be fun. I'll 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 definitely consider that. I'll keep your email address. Uh please let me know when this is going to go live so I can, you know, post it on my website and stuff like that. Definitely. Okay. We'll do. I'll send you an email with all the links once we're done. Okay. Terrific. Yeah. And for our listeners, well, there'll be links. Oh, what is your um your links to your all of your information as well? To where they can well, buy your book I have and my, things like that. I have a website, scottkharris.com, and my book is available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And uh, my uh, book, Leap Forward, is also available on Audible and Amazon as an audio book uh, narrated by myself. Nice. And I've enjoyed listening to books that are read by authors in the past, so I wanted to do that myself. I think you can impose a lot more of your own emotion and uh, emphasis with your own spoken word as opposed to the written word. Yeah. I think the writing is okay too, but I like the, I like the audiobook. I do. I, I'm kind of proud of it. She mentioned as, it as a day. listener <laughs> of audiobooks, like 
I love it when the authors read their own audiobooks because not all of them do that. So it's good yeah. that you did your own audio. Yeah, I, I, I'm very proud of that. Yeah. I think it came off pretty well. Well, hopefully you'll have day. to give it a listen and tell yeah, me. Yeah, we'll definitely yeah. do that. <laughs> Add it to the list. Well, we'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in and for supporting. And you can find the podcast at americangypsy.com as well as all podcast platforms and video on YouTube. But all of that is on you can find links to that on americangypsy.com as well as links to our online store. Um, we have merch at luamli.com. And, and we also have some music that you can check out under Classic Carpenter, K-L-A-C-C-I-K-C-A-R-P-E-N-T-A on all major platforms, uh, Spotify, iTunes, Tidal, YouTube, et cetera. Some cello music and, you know, some nice instrumentals. And thank you again for tuning in. Consistent self-improvement to everyone. and. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.